Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. Following our last episode with Peter Singer about animal suffering, we have planned a short series of interviews with people who are actually working to help reduce that suffering. So first off, in this episode, we talk to Leia Edgerton and Manya Gatner, who are respectively the executive director and a senior researcher at Animal Charity Evaluators, or ACE for short. Charity evaluation is something that we've already touched upon in this podcast, but as we learn from our conversation here, it can actually look very different at ACE compared to other organizations like GiveWell or SoGive, who focus mostly on global health. Firstly, this is simply because we have much less research to go off from when it comes to animal welfare. This not only changes how ACE goes about their analysis, having to deal with much more uncertainty, but also means that funding new charities can be a really effective thing to do, helping the movement collect new information. As we talk about with Manya, there are loads of opportunities for academic research here too. Secondly is how ACE is different in considering not just the interventions of a given charity, but really the health of the movement as a whole. As Leia explains, this is in part because effective altruism has actually become a really big player in all of this, accounting for around 25% of all funds related to farmed animal advocacy. And so EA has much potential in shaping its direction. We do also talk about a bunch of other stuff, such as cognitive dissonance when eating meat, building up capacity in developing countries like China, and ACE's future strategy. As always, you'll find chapter marks in the episode description to help guide you through all of this. And if you want to find out more, do have a look at the write-up on our website, where we have explanations, links, and graphs to help you dig deeper into all of this. But without any further ado, here's the episode. Um, Yeah, I'm Leah Edgerton. I'm the executive director of a charity called Animal Charity Evaluators. Our mission is to uh, find and promote the most effective ways to help animals. And uh, I've been involved in animal advocacy my whole life, starting when I was a toddler rescuing turtles in my backyard. Um, my first career goal was to be a doctor for turtles and mice and, uh, you know, got involved into different types of, of animal advocacy throughout my childhood, adolescence, university career. And um, yeah, now I work professionally in the movement and I've been at Animal Charity Evaluators uh, on and off for about five years. And I've been involved with the effective altruism movement since uh, university when um, I got involved with an advocacy group in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, who have now gone on to become various things such as the EA Foundation and uh, now the Center for Long-Term Priorities in Oxford. Cool. And uh, Manya, do you want to introduce yourself as well? Yes, thank you for having us. My name is Manja Gärtner. I joined ACE in May of 2020 as a senior researcher So I have a PhD in economics and before joining Animal Charity Evaluators, I used to work as an academic researcher. And how did uh, you get involved in the animal advocacy movement? What brought you from behavioral economics uh, to to that? So I first encountered, uh, I think, the effective altruism movement. I grew up in Germany and Peter Singer was a very debated uh, person in Germany in the 1990s. So uh, his ideas were all over the newspapers and he was a very controversial figure. So as a teenager, I read his books. Then years later, I was already studying as a PhD student. I went to a seminar of uh, Will McEskill in Stockholm, where I did my PhD. And that's when I started following the effective altruism movement. Yeah, I 
ended up joining ACE and the Effective Animal Advocacy uh, Movement because I always was very compassionate about animals. I think it's one of the most important topics in the world at the moment. And I had finally the opportunity to actually use my knowledge to contribute to the movement. Before we get going, I'm just curious to know, in general, um, how many people arrive at the effective altruism aspect of animal advocacy from an existing interest in in animal advocacy? And how many people start off with the EA interest and then narrow down into animals as a specific cause area? Is there a kind of typical direction there? Yeah, um, I have definitely seen both. I would say in terms of professional advocates working in the movement, uh, I tend to see more people who started um, as animal advocates uh, and then sort of learned more about EA or or maybe were already thinking about things and later learned they were called EA. Um, and I do see some people who, who come at it from, um, you know, learning about effective altruism and trying to think about what cause areas are most important and then arrive at animal advocacy. Um, although I have to say, I see that slightly more commonly in the donor space than in the activist space. So when we talk about um, like effective animal advocacy, right, that's kind of the mix of these two words, right, effective and animal advocacy. Um, Manya, could you maybe explain a bit more about what the effectiveness part of it means, um, what it actually means for the work you're doing at ACE, and uh, more broadly, why it's something that we should care about when it comes to animal advocacy? So animal advocacy and effective animal advocacy, they have the same goal, and that's reducing the suffering of animals. Uh, The effective part means really that we want to base our decisions and our spending of time and money on evidence. So we want to use evidence from research to guide our actions and uh, funding decisions. One of the big lessons... uh that you first learn about when you're kind of getting involved, you know, with ACE on their website or more broadly with the effective animal advocacy space is that the shift of focus becomes very different to what people normally might think about when we're talking about animal rights. Um, Instead of focusing on pets or rescue centers and the like, um, a lot of ACE's work is actually in the farm space. Could you talk a bit uh, about why that is and what really um, the magnitude of this problem is as well about uh, factory farming and the like? Yeah, I also got involved in in animal advocacy, you know, first working with um, cat and dog shelters. I used to foster them. Um, I know Manya still does foster cats, and um, I have two rescue cats myself from animal shelters. I definitely don't mean to say that, you know, helping cats and dogs is is not an effective use of time. Certainly, uh, companion animals are still suffering around the world um, and do need a lot of support. And, um, you know, it absolutely is an important uh, cause to support. Um, But what we mean by using an effective altruism framework is we try to look for problems that are large in scale, so which uh, many animals are affected by. Um, And in the case of animal advocacy, most animals raised and killed by humans are farmed animals, about 99%. So all animals um, in zoos or used in cosmetic testing or raised for fur or um, living in cat and dog shelters, they make up the other 1%. And then we also try to look at uh, neglectedness. So um, how many people or resources are already going towards helping those animals? Um, And in this case, about 99% of resources are going towards helping um, everyone but farmed animals. 
And so that's why, uh, yeah, only about 1% of the funding is going towards charities that specifically try to reduce farm animal suffering. So that's another reason why we tend to focus on farmed animals. And then the third uh, EA criteria that we use is uh, tractability, which is a fancy word for saying, you know, do we know of good solutions to these problems? And do we have a good way of helping these animals? And in the case of uh, farmed animal advocacy, we certainly do know of alternatives. There's the alternative of, you know, not eating meat or um, improving the welfare of animals on farms or improving policy around both of those things, improving education. Um, so there's there's a lot of opportunities out there in order to improve the lives of farmed animals. So we view that cause area for a donor or an activist who you know really wants to think about how their individual advocacy can help the highest number of animals and make the biggest difference for animals. We think that you know whether you're vegetarian or not, whether you're vegan or not, um, you know helping farmed animals is is where you're going to be able to make the biggest difference in the lives of as many animals as possible. Before we get into that, could we talk a bit more about um, why the current state has this enormous imbalance that you described? So why is it at the moment that even though the vast majority of animals that suffer or like the amount of suffering is in the farmed space and yet so few of donations uh, are going there or historically have gone there? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a variety of factors um, probably the largest one, I mean, you know, of course, I'm, I'm speculating here, um, but I think um, in general, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. So when people, if you're eating an animal, it's more likely that you're going to be viewing the animal as not having moral standing. Um, and so that sort of creates an effect where it becomes, you know, easier for us to treat them as an object rather than an, a moral being. And, you know, then I think that's kind of a a long story that's led to, you know, farming and then, of course, industrialization of farming and then, of course, the, um, you know, capitalistic incentives that have led us to try to produce more um, meat cheaper. Um, so I think it's just kind of a, a mental block carried out very, very far. But maybe Manya can talk us, to us a little bit more about the research behind this type of cognitive dissonance. So the term that is usually used in research is, is the meat paradox. So there's a paradox between what people do, so they eat animals, and what they believe. They don't want animals to suffer. And that's this discrepancy between actions and beliefs is actually what causes this dissonance. So you have a discomfort because you do things that are not actually aligned with what you believe. Believe that many people feel this, and then, of course, there are two ways out of this discomfort. It's either you change your actions or you change your beliefs. So some people say, I stop eating meat, so I don't have to deal with this uh, dissonance any longer. But another and I think more common way to go is to change your beliefs. And there are many routes. One of them, for example, is to deny animals of certain properties. You may deny how much they actually suffered, they have a mind, that they have agency, and so on. Uh, you may also deny your responsibility so that's typically along the lines like i as an individual cannot change anything anyway and then there's a third aspect which is society and society is making it easier for us to change our beliefs and this is due to uh, meat eating being a norm being a tradition and the practices of factory farming being very removed from our lives normally so we don't see what's happening in the factories. When we go and buy meat, it's very much removed from the original product and so on. 
I'd be curious as well, um, given your background, right, in behavioral economics, is there any insights from that field or possibly as well, like any solutions that have been proposed to, to help narrow this cognitive dissonance or to help tackle this, this meat paradox, as you said? So the theory of cognitive dissonance originates from psychology, but at this point, there are uh, theories trying to model the meat paradox, both in psychology and in economics. Uh, the solutions usually evolve around the explanations. So they evolve around either can we change people's actions or can we change people's beliefs? And that's where we are at the research uh, frontier. We don't know exactly what works. So we need to do run experiments where we try to affect one of these things and see how people change either their behavior or their beliefs. Can you maybe give an example of one of those experiments just for context? Uh, so a recent study looks at the effect of educating people about ethics on their meat eating behavior. That's one example. You give people education and then you see whether they actually change their behavior. And in that case, it was the case that students who were attending a class on the ethics of meat eating and uh, its impact on the environment actually bought fewer meals containing animal products in the cafeteria. Just going to interrupt with a little plug. I think that was funded by our research fund at ACE. Luca, editing this episode here, just to quickly say that this bit of research was actually done by Peter Singer, who we interviewed in the previous episode of the podcast, uh, talking about lots of stuff, including this very study. So if listeners want to find out more, they should definitely listen to that. That's episode 19. But first, back to this episode. So when you're approaching animal, animal advocacy, you can do one of two things, right? You can directly advocate for animals, but then you can also take a step back and conduct empirical research and evaluate different charities. And people can then use that information to more effectively use their own money when they're choosing where to donate to. So in general, why does charity evaluation matter so much for animal advocacy? Why does a charity like animal charity evaluators need to exist in the first place? So first of all, I want to say I think it's a little bit of a false dichotomy. I think, um, you know, some of the ways that we learn the most about what works and the way that we gather empirical evidence is by doing advocacy and, you know, uh, monitoring it and, and doing impact evaluations along the way. I think, um, yeah, that can be an effective way to learn more about impact. But in general, I think, um, you know, as a, as a sort of meta charity, you know, we're a charity that's not directly taking, carrying out interventions that help animals. Um, we only want to exist insofar as we support other charities or other advocates to be more effective in their own work. Um, so last year, for example, our own operating budget was about $1 million and we influenced almost $9 million to effective animal charities. So we think that that was a, a good use of funding, you know, to support us to um, be able to influence donors, to be able to assist charities, to be able to fund research, to be able to kind of be a leverage point to help other um, charities, other donors and other advocates um, make the most use out of their own time and resources. So that's kind of why why we think a charity like us should exist, although we think that you know, we should only exist insofar as we continue to add that level of value. And you know, our goal is to have our own operating budget be as modest as possible and provide as much value to the movement as possible along the way. If you were to bucket the amount of money going towards what we can call direct advocacy as compared to 
um, charity evaluation and research. Do you have some impression of the split there? And do you think that split is, is where it should be? Right now, I would say very little um, funding goes towards research. I think it should probably remain less than advocacy, but I do think there is a lot of more room for funding and research, um, whether that's supporting a charity like ours doing charity evaluations and outreach to donors and trying to bring more donors into the movement and trying to help existing donors be more effective, trying to help existing charities be more effective, or whether that's directly funding research or effective animal advocacy fund. I think there's there's a lot of room for more funding for most for all of those types of activities. Um, in general, we um, don't see a lot of overlap in the donors who prefer to fund one or the other. Um, we tend to get more uh, donors from the EA community or more sort of donors from maybe the academic community who are you know very aware of the nuanced argument for you know why you might want to do more research, why you might want to have a meta charity in a space. Um, and then a lot of um, general advocates just use our recommendations to, you know, inform their own giving for that year and, and don't necessarily understand or, or want to support uh, a meta charity. Um, but it is a common pathway that we see with donors. They start, you know, maybe first um, giving to one of our top charities and then they say, oh, okay, you know, the next year we might give to your recommended charity fund and um, trust uh, some researchers in the field to make the best allocation of uh, funds between those groups, and then maybe uh, a year or two later, um, be willing to fund a, a meta charity like us to, um, you know, do more of the groundwork of attracting new funders and creating new research ourselves. I was going to say one thing that I find uh, very interesting as well, right? As like a, a meta charity, is how you can influence the conversation, or like how the animal charity space itself exists. And you mentioned uh, in one of your talks that uh, you're now looking to prioritize the health of the movement. Uh, can you explain a bit about what that means and what that means for ACE as well in, in how you're trying to, to shape animal advocacy? Sure. Yeah. So it's definitely an ongoing discussion that we have internally um, around strategy, around the value of you know us focusing on our core programs of charity evaluation and creating research versus the role that we have as you know a thought leader in our field to promote certain norms that we think are important. Um, and historically, those norms have been things that um, I think we've been very successful in spreading things like impact evaluation, things like um, you know cost effectiveness, um, or working internationally more. And we certainly have seen um, both charities, you know, asking questions of those themselves and adapting their programs themselves based on these types of considerations, and also donors asking charities to report more explicitly on you know how they're assessing their own impact and how they've made decisions strategically based on evidence. Um, you know, not just our top charities, but in general, we see that as a conversation that is like much more common at, at animal rights conferences than it was five years ago. And I think another big area um, that we, you know, are trying to bring more attention to and, and are happy to see more attention going towards is, as you mentioned, specifically the health of the movement. Um, so I mean that quite broadly. I mean that in terms of the individual organizational cultures or leadership strategies or management and governance policies of different charities, as well as, you know, um, activist retention, um, empowering our movement to un better understand um, considerations around representation, equity, and inclusion. Um, basically everything that's not strategy, but still has a lot really large impact on effectiveness. So I think EA has historically been pretty good at 
um, evaluating the relative effectiveness of different strategic questions, so different interventions, for example, um, you know, people asked, is it more effective to do a corporate campaign to um, ask the company to commit to higher welfare standards, or is it more effective to, um, you know, work with a school district to create meatless Mondays, or is it more effective to work with lobbyists? So those are the types of questions that are strategic, and we think those are absolutely important and should continue to be addressed. Um, but we also think that there has been a relative neglect of questions around, you know, what are effective ways to manage and govern a charity um, and what are effective ways to retain activists so that our movement, you know, develops more professionalism over time and that we can build on the learning and the capacity that activists build over time. That's been, you know, as a charity evaluator, one of the most common failure modes we've seen for charities is charities being unable to grow past a certain point um, or you know, running into management and governance um, issues where they're unable to effectively carry out their great strategies. And so uh, we want to place an emphasis on, yeah, both carrying out great strategies, but also, you know, having an organization that can carry out the strategy and also retain staff in order to learn and grow and build the movement over the longer term. So it sounds like when we talk about effectiveness in the animal space, we have to ask question effectiveness with respect to what right and it sounds like there are so many different things we can we can quantify for a start there are different kinds of animal there are different kinds of animal farming and animal suffering so can you give an impression of the kind of things that you're trying to measure as a charity evaluator what are the metrics that you care about and how do you begin to quantify such a kind of messy space like this so it's definitely true. There are a lot of uh, issues about around measurability. If you think about just how do we measure suffering or welfare of animals, there's a lot to be done. At this point, at Animal Charity Evaluators, we mainly look at the number of animals affected. So whether a welfare reform has a positive effect on welfare is something uh, we are informed about by life sciences. However, we do not quantify the exact increase in welfare within a species or across species. So that's, I would say, is still something to, that needs to be worked on. What we're mainly focused on at the moment is gathering evidence on which interventions, so which actions we take, actually have a causal effect on the well-being of animals. So I think this is still the biggest question. There are more research is needed. That could come from both researchers within organizations, organizations themselves, or academic researchers. Zooming out of animal advocacy uh, in particular, when you take a meta-charity like ACE or like GiveWell, one of the really interesting things that they tend to find is that the difference in effectiveness between the most effective charities and the what you might call the average charity is surprisingly large. It's not just like two or three X, it could be you know up to a hundred X. So can you give some impression about just how much more effective the very best interventions and charities are? So Rethink uh, Priorities, another EA organization just uh, published a paper where they estimate that uh, donating $1 to corporate outreach can affect 10 years of the chicken's life or more. So I think the impact is uh, is huge. Yeah, in general, we 
you know, as, as an EA organization, we're, we're very careful with our wording and we're very careful with what we make claims about and what we don't. And because this research is, like, like Manya was saying, this data is extremely hard to find, um, you know, even, even if we could get good access to how many dollars were spent on a corporate campaign and um, how many um, animals were affected within the supply chain of a company thanks to that campaign, which is already research that's very difficult to understand, um, being able to quantify the long-term knock-on effects of that campaign, for example, you know, now that this um, company is only selling cage-free eggs, are consumers now thinking, oh, great, these are, you know, high welfare eggs, I'm going to buy more of them? Or are they thinking, oh, well, you know, now I'm a person who cares about eggs and now I want to also reduce my consumption. Like, we don't, we don't understand these types of long-term effects as well. Um, we don't understand, you know, how well that campaign might compare to something like a meatless Monday or making a documentary or writing a book or online ads or, um, you know, there's, it's really hard for us to get um, great numbers on these things. And, and we do make guesstimate models and we, we do, um, you know, use our best judgments to, to come up with estimates and to plug in numbers to try to compare things. Um, but in general, we're pretty hesitant to make, um, you know, numerical claims when, when the research is so fuzzy here. Um, so we don't usually use in our advocacy, you know, um, you know, you can help X number of animals per dollar um, and, you know, cats and dog shelters can only help X. Um, we also don't know, you know, like what a great theory of change is like, you know, are people going to bond more with cats and dogs and then understand animals have moral agency and then eat less pigs? Like, who knows? <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're trying to answer those questions. And, and of course, we have intuitions and there is research that points to some things over others. Um, but we try to be pretty modest with our our claims. And I would say, you know, based on the things that I mentioned before, the, the massive scale of suffering, um, the huge neglectedness um, that is surrounding farm animal advocacy, and the fact that we do have these really, really high leverage interventions like the corporate campaigns that um, Manya mentioned, we do think that, yeah, supporting farm animal advocacy and specifically um, the types of charities that we're recommending is an extremely effective use of funding. Um, and we definitely recommend that donors who are interested in creating the highest amount of change for, for animals invest in those. So um, I think the one thing that we've gathered is that getting any like precise answer is incredibly dif uh, difficult. Both of you have kind of hinted at almost like two challenges. Um, like there's the challenge of knowing how much is this intervention actually going to affect people? If we do this documentary, how many people might become vegetarian? And then there's also this question of like foundational issues, uh, which is, okay, if people then go vegetarian, how much does this actually help animals? So given all of those challenges, how do you then go about picking your top charities? Like what for you would be the key indicators that this is a charity that is actually very effective in what they're doing? So effectiveness, evaluating effectiveness is one part of the charity evaluations. And there, of course, we try to work with the evidence that exists, even though it's not as much as we want. Uh, so, and one important thing here is to be very transparent and always point out uncertainties that we have. And I think that's something we do. Um, charity evaluations are about more than just the effectiveness of interventions. We also look at financial data, for example. So we're also interested in the room for more funding that the charity have. So can they effectively absorb additional resources? Can they expand in a way that uh, we find meaningful? And then connecting to what we talked about earlier, we also look at the culture in the charity itself. 
how's the leadership doing how are they adapting to changes and how satisfied are the employees with the organization uh you drew this distinction between effectiveness in general and cost effectiveness uh in particular so my question is what other kinds of effectiveness are there and what are the dangers of um focusing prematurely on just cost effectiveness i think ideally we would always like to be looking at cost effectiveness like if we had perfect information um, and we would hope that cost effectiveness would help us understand you know the long-term effects um, and then, you know, how, how it interacts with other, um, you know, things that we might care about, like, you know, human welfare or other important cause areas. If in a perfect world, we would be using entirely cost effectiveness. Um, but as we mentioned, because we're so limited by the amount of research and by, you know, the ability to predict um, long-term outcomes, we try to look at other indicators of, you know, organizations being effective, like Manya mentioned about uh you know, culture, leadership, strategy, financials, room for more funding, track record, their ability to learn from success and failure. So, you know, that gives us confidence that this charity, when new information comes out or when the world changes, as it so drastically did in 2020, you know, is this charity going to be able to navigate those uncertainties? Are they going to be able to, you know, make the most out of out of what happened? Um, are they going to be able to retain their staff and, you know, make the movement more effective and professionalized over the long term? Um, so we look at these types of things that can help us, yeah, consider effectiveness in the long term. And then another point I wanted to make about that is um, when we're looking at things like cost effectiveness, one of the potential pitfalls that we're trying to avoid is only looking at short term incremental metri- measurable change. Uh, so, like, you know, we might be able to say that, um, you know, we did this campaign this year and this company has now pledged to, um, you know, have cage-free eggs. And that affects, I don't know, three million uh, laying hens per year, which is which is really wonderful. But then there might be an intervention, which is, you know, providing uh, legal personhood for animals in a country that might, you know, not result in meaningful change for an animal uh, this year or next year, but might you know, lay the foundation for legal precedents that can be used 50 or 100 years in the future to create really meaningful change and and lasting change for animals. Um, So we try to also, you know, look not just at evidence, um, but also reason. So, you know, in places where we lack evidence, how can we use, you know, good reason or logical thinking or learning from from past um, movement successes to, you know, take bets on the higher risk, higher reward, interventions to help animals. Um, we also we want to be making sure we're not ruling out transformational change by only incentivizing uh, incremental change. Like suppose I had just I have a bunch of money uh, which I I want to donate to the charity which just has the the most impact and expectation and if I cared about global health for instance as a cause area then I could be quite confident that some new charity which comes along is going to have to drive very hard in order to do better than the charities we know that, uh, to be most effective here, like the Against Malaria Foundation. And that's because there's already quite a lot of evidence about cost effectiveness in global health. And so I'd probably do best just to give my money to one of these charities we, we know a lot about rather than a more speculative bet, which promises a really good upside, but which we have like no information about. But it sounds to me like the kind of effective animal advocacy space 
it's like less mature when it comes to research than other cause areas. It's like really early days. It's really complicated and hard to get the kind of relevant empirical information. So if I'm trying to decide where to give my money and I want to give it to an animal charity, is there a case to be made just to give lots of money to the more speculative charities, which we know less about, just because information is so valuable at this stage? Like, it sounds to me like we shouldn't be latching on to the charities we think are most effective at the expense of everything else. It sounds like we should be trying as many things as possible. And like, this is a time to collect information. Does that make sense? And does it sound right? Yeah, I do think um, absolutely that, you know, one way we can invest in the effectiveness of the movement in addition to just individual charities at this stage is to, you know, fund smaller groups, take bigger risks, Um, I think in addition to the value of information and the value of research, um, another thing that we haven't touched on yet in this discussion is the value of like capacity building in regions of the world that are currently very neglected. So currently the farm animal advocacy movement is most mature in Western Europe and North America. And um, obviously those are regions of the world where people do eat a significant amount of meat, but there are other parts of the world like Brazil and China and Indonesia Um, where there's very quickly rising uh, meat consumption and still very, very young movements. And so I think another thing that can be viewed as very effective at this stage is to, you know, start building up these organizations, start um, helping organizations and advocates learn about the the issues that are going on specifically in other regions of the world and start, um, you know, understanding uh, and trying out different ways to address animal suffering in parts of the world where, um, you know, considerations might be quite different than Western Europe or North America. So, yeah, I think that uh, if, if you had a lot of money and you're looking to figure out where to give it, um, you might want to give it, you know, a, a split between something that we um, can see as causing measurable change in the short term um, and things that we see um, as more speculative bets in the longer term that's why at ACE we, we offer both a recommended charity fund, which donors can give to, and we um, split the donations among our top and standout charities, and also our effective animal advocacy fund, which we're actually rebranding. It's now called the ACE Movement Grants. That one splits out um, donations usually in smaller amounts among a higher number of charities. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I believe we funded something like uh, 100 different charities through that. And the, the grants raised uh, are between, I think, maybe 3000 US dollars all the way through um, 70000 US dollars. So those are more um, like incubation grants or grants to kind of invest in the capacity building of the movement um, in the hopes that they might turn into really effective larger charities over time or do something small but really impactful that we need to, to get to another stage um, as a movement Um, But yeah, I absolutely think you should be thinking about diversifying your resources if you want to be impactful and you have a lot of money to donate. Yeah, so you mentioned that there is um, a lot of scope for growth for animal advocacy and animal movements elsewhere in the world beyond Europe and North America. But it sounds like there there are different challenges there and different barriers. What does this look like for me if I'm trying to start some... Um, animal charity in China. Just to get a sense of the differences, what does this look like? Yeah, so in the case of China, 
Um, last time I looked at these numbers, I think it's about one quarter of farmed land animals that are raised and killed in China and about half of all farmed fish. So we're looking at, um, by number of individual animals, like about half of the animals raised and killed in the world for food are raised and killed in China, um, which is absolutely massive. And yeah, as you mentioned, um, considerations for advocacy there are very different. It's a very different political climate. It's a very different geography. It's a very different economic climate and social climate. So um, I certainly would not advise like a copy-paste uh, version of things that have worked in the West. Um, and in fact, I, um, you know, you asked the question, what would you do if you wanted to start a charity? I would, I would recommend that uh, fit from the UK not start a charity in China and that instead <laughs> Or someone who, who has a lot of um, more local knowledge and maybe more connections to um, take that work on themselves. And, and uh, you know, we've tried to provide resources, whether that's research or funding or um, training to, to um, Chinese advocates. I think those are all ways that, um, you know, we as Western advocates can support. Um, we have uh, in the past granted to a group in China, and uh, we may in the future end up evaluating some organizations in China we also have a report on our website that you actually need to uh, request permission to read because of the sensitive nature of it on China, but you can um, email that us if you'd like to learn more about that. Um, but in general, yeah, I think in my, one of my previous roles um, before I took the executive director position at ACE, I was working at ProVeg International and I was um, helping build up their China program. And when I started there, I was thinking, oh gosh, you know, this is big black box. How are we possibly going to do anything um, but I think there actually are really inspiring opportunities to be helping animals in, in pretty much all parts of the world. It just takes a little bit of like creativity and understanding local knowledge and figuring out where to look. Um, you know, in, in some cases, there are higher opportunities for um, legal advocacy than there might be in other parts of the world. And there's a huge tradition of um, Buddhist cuisine in China that, that is meat-free, and they've had mock meats for, for centuries and of course, there's a, a huge investment in technology. There's openness to trying new foods. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, a lot of cultural values around compassion and, um, you know, understanding the natural world. I think there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot to go on there and there's a lot of reasons to have hope. But I, I would recommend, uh, yeah, an approach where those of us not from the country are taking a more supportive role and uh, deferring more to, to local advocates and uh, being willing to trust them to, to make decisions with the, with the funding and uh, not having a lot of requirements or strategic demands uh, and letting people make their own decisions. One topic that I want to, to start talking about, and I think this is something we're both can contribute to, is how ACE then takes its research and takes all of these uh, thoughts and ideas that you have about turning animal advocacy uh, to be more effective and how you actually go about doing this. Because there seems to be two ways that this can kind of happen one way is that you inform donors and you help channel money to go to the right things and then the other thing is actually working with ngos and giving them advice and uh, you mentioned like uh, these incubating schemes as well and um, i'm very curious how much emphasis at the moment is given to these two areas respectively and also how that shapes the current work that you're doing in particular how you actually go about evaluating charities because it was mentioned before right that you don't put a specific number on it and when i read through the actual reviews that you guys are reporting they are very super comprehensive 
but it also might mean uh, that it's more directed maybe to people who are really, really interested in these things, as opposed to just the general donor who just kind of wants a, a quick number, right? Or like a very quick answer to, to see where they should be putting their money to. Yeah, so uh, when ACE was founded, I don't know, maybe seven years ago now, um, we were, to my knowledge, the only EA meta charity working within animal advocacy. In fact, even three years ago, when we wrote our last strategic plan, um, Open Philanthropy Project had only just started granting in the space. Um, I don't think the Center for Effective Altruism had the Animal Welfare Fund yet. Um, Rethink Priorities was not doing as much research on farm animal advocacy, or I think they didn't exist. And Faunalytics was not doing as much on farm animal advocacy. So uh, in the past, we tried to kind of be everything for the effective animal advocacy movement. And uh, as the field has gotten more professionalized and there's been more specialized workers in the space, um, we've been able to kind of narrow our focus. And so um, we're rewriting our three-year strategic plan right now, which will be from 2021 to 2023. And yeah, so we're, we're actually juggling ourselves with this question about how much, you know, should we be directly supporting charities and improving their programs versus um, how much we should be informing donors and um, evaluating charities and working on our grants. And I think our um, tentative decision at this point is to focus mostly on the um, charity evaluation and grant making process. So um, in that during that process, we see that as kind of identifying what we think are the most effective ways to help animals, whether that's interventions or governance or management criteria we want to see more of. And then, you know, by asking these questions when we engage with charities through the grant making progress or when we engage with charities that we review through our charity evaluations, um, charities are, you know, starting to engage more with these questions themselves. They're seeing that we're incentivizing them essentially with funding and able to reward charities who, um, you know, are able to pivot to either these um, more effective management and governance policies or um, to, you know, more effective cause areas or more effective programs. And so I think we view, yeah, our leverage is coming through our ability to influence funding and, and our ability to optimize the allocation of resources within um, animal advocacy in general. And so I think that's likely to continue to be a larger focus of ours. And as a smaller side focus, you know, of course, we we don't want to be like the Oscars of the animal rights movement. We don't want to be just like looking down our noses at people. We genuinely want charities to do well on our criteria and to receive more funding and to get a bigger spot. Like we, we really, you know, want to be sitting alongside and supporting the movement and not like, you know, just judging it from the outside. Um, and so when possible, we, we like to share resources. Like, for example, last year we wrote a very comprehensive anti-discrimination and harassment policy, which is on our website and we've helped several organizations adapt it and use it themselves. Um, we've connected many charities with um, management consultants or organizational development specialists. Um, we've funded groups doing work around um, racial equity within the movement who have been able to consult other charities. You know, many of us are individual mentors to newer people in the movement. Uh, we, we do look for ways to, to share our resources and to help everyone become more effective. But we also understand that the, the highest leverage way we have to do that is by um, working with funders and, you know, engaging with charities through our grant making process and charity evaluation process. 
Manya, could you maybe talk a bit as well about how that is then reflected in the charity reviews themselves? Yeah, so I'm currently working on the 2020 charity evaluations, and I think that they are primarily directed at the donors, but as Leah says, I hope they are also useful for the charities themselves because they give in a report and an overview of their work from an outsider's perspective. So what we always try to do in the evaluations is to point out avenues for improvement for the charity. So if you think about their programs and the actions they take to help animals, we point out what we think are valuable and effective avenues. When it comes to finances, we point out whether we think they have enough reserve holdings, for example. And when it comes to culture, we also point out possible avenues for improvement. As a, as a follow-up question, do you know maybe of any examples or like in general as well of like how much charities pay attention to these charity reviews? I mean, obviously, there's a huge financial incentive too. Uh, yeah, we do see charities who have, um, you know, altered their programs or their management or governance practices based on our feedback. We've seen, you know, charities try to um, alter the way that they engage with their different um, international branches, for example, to give more autonomy to international teams. Um, we've seen organizations implement better um, harassment and discrimination policies. We've seen some charities um, pivot from having a broader focus to focusing on farm animal advocacy or focusing on particularly neglected groups of animals like fish or, or chickens. Um, so yeah, certainly we have seen charities learn and uh, improve based on the feedback we've given them. And, and anecdotally, we've also had many charities tell us that you know they get a lot of insight both through um, the feedback that we give them, but also just from going through the process themselves. You know, they're also like compiling all this data and and looking at it themselves. In particular, I think that the people who apply for our ACE Movement Grants um, funds are the new name. Um, those are often like really small charities who have never, you know, sat down and written a strategic plan and have to kind of think through, oh, where would we want to be in five years? And, you know, how do we organize our, our governance and decision making? And um, how are we going to know if this project was uh, successful or not? How are we going to evaluate that? So I think, yeah, anecdotally, we hear from a lot of charities that um, they find engaging with us to be um, a useful exercise. If I can ask, like on the flip side as well, do you know if there's like tensions as well? I'm guessing with the charities you rate very highly and that are very effective, that is probably a very nice conversation to be having. But when it gets, I guess, to like the harder reasons or also like differences in, in, in strategy um, between like what should be prioritized. How, how does how does that work? How would you work with, with charities that might not see effectiveness as their, um, their core principle, but are still rated by it? Yeah, um, I think as a charity evaluator, you know, saying some charities are top charities, some charities are standout charities, and some charities are not recommended. Um, you know, we, we don't want to be a, a watchdog or a police force within our movement, but we are sometimes kind of inadvertently pressured into that role. Uh, so we, we don't see ourselves as a watchdog. We don't have any interest in publishing negative information about charities or harming any charities or telling donors where, where not to give um, or anything like that. Um, everything that we publish on our website about charities is with their full permission. So charities see the reviews before we publish them they're able to suggest anything that they think is an unfair representation of their work. And if we agree, we publish it. If we don't agree, we don't publish it. 
Um, so, you know, we want to be in a collaborative stance. We want charities to feel comfortable being honest with us. You know, we want to be a support to charities. Absolutely do not want to be playing any kind of like policing role. But uh, of course, uh, as a charity evaluator there, there are certainly circumstances where charities have you know seen a review that we've written, um, not really liked what they saw and, uh, you know, refused to publish it or something like that. So um, that does happen. And uh, we try very hard to, to avoid those types of situations. But certainly it does happen. Um, the people don't like, you know, what we've uncovered in our evaluation. I'm just curious to get an impression of how the animal advocacy landscape has changed in, let's say, the last um, half decade. And in particular, how dominant has kind of effective altruism influence thinking become in farmed animal advocacy? So I know that these kind of EA influence groups have moved a lot more money recently. So can you give just a flavour for how big that change has been? Yeah, so um, if we look back about five years, so um, five years ago is when I started as an intern at Animal Charity Evaluator. So that was my starting point in the movement. And I have to say that uh, the changes I've seen our movement accomplish in just the last five years were more than I expected to see us accomplish in my lifetime. I think maybe I was very pessimistic, but I didn't expect to see, you know, like um, impossible burgers at Burger King and like all these investors in, in meat alternative space and, um, you know, the huge improvements that have been made in terms of animal welfare policies and also legal protection. So um, I think there's been a massive transformation in, in the space in the last five years. Uh, but when we started... I think the first year that we tracked the number of gifts that we influenced for charities uh, to charities was in 2014, and uh, we influenced uh, just under 150,000 US dollars, uh, which again I don't I don't have great data, but I think it was less than one percent of the movement's budget at that point, the farm animal advocacy movement's budget. Whereas in 2018, if you look at the EA organizations within our space, so that's ACE and Open Philanthropy, and the Center for Effective Altruism. Um, together, we influence about 25% of the funding within farmed animal advocacy. And that's obviously like quite a large percentage. Like I said, I, I have seen you know people at conferences, um, conference organizers giving way more stage time to EA groups or um, talks about research or st- strategy or effectiveness. There has been a whole lot more research done. Like I said, there are many more organizations working in our field. There's been a lot more specialization. So, um, yeah, I think it has been uh, a pretty big transformation. Maybe I can add my experience uh, since I'm new in the movement. I don't think I would be here without these developments. When I was working as an economist researcher, I, I didn't expect to work on farmed animal welfare at some point. So things have definitely changed. Also within academia. Last year, I organized a conference on the topic of eating meat in the social sciences. And it was really interesting to see how many people were interested in the conference and so thankful for us organizing it. So people came from all over the world, from different disciplines, some established professors, uh, some young researchers. And I think this will also be a growing academic field soon. There's more to come from that side, more research to come in and more talented people to work on the topic. I mean, let's let's peer into that crystal ball then. And um, I'd be really curious to hear about 
any plans that either of you had in mind for the next year or maybe the next five years, let's say. So starting with Manya, are there kind of larger scale studies that you would be really happy to see completed by 2025? What are the things you'd like to prioritize um, finding out by then? What would you really like to know? Okay, it's a very long list um, of studies I would like to see. Definitely, I want to see more intervention studies, people trying to really get the causal effects. I would love to see this becoming more of an academic field, especially in the social sciences. So I'm hoping that some talented people dedicate their research to this topic and make this a flourishing field with many more people to join. I think this is my biggest hope that we can benefit from academic research. I think that's a really interesting point where especially if you maybe compare it to like development studies, where you do have, right, there's like very close link between like academic studies and charity evaluators. Like I'm thinking as well, you know, if, if we look at organizations like GiveWell, they're working with like very established academics like Migwell and Kramer, right, when it comes to doing RCTs and like really finding out how effective deworming or malaria nets are. I think that's like would be a super exciting opportunity to see that spread to uh, animal charity, that kind of like partnership. Exactly, that's what I'm hoping for, and I'm actually fairly optimistic that this will happen. Mm, yeah, and do you have any tips as well for people who might want to do that kind of work, maybe based on your own background in, in economics? So I think it's really uh, great to be an economist in, in the sense that you can work on many topics. So economics is really just a great tool to model behavior and estimate causal effects. So it really gives you like the toolbox to look thoroughly into a different set of topics. So as I said, when I worked as an economist, I never imagined that I would work on animal advocacy. But now given that the effective uh, altruism movement is um, pushing evidence-based decision-making also in these fields, there certainly is a need for economists. So I think this time is really a great chance for everyone who either already studies economics or considers studying economics to take up these chances and make a big impact. Yeah, and I guess like contrasting, right, this academic research uh, versus the charity evaluation stuff which you are doing now, what for you have been like the, the biggest changes? So definitely the pace has changed, which is something I like. Uh, academia is a much slower pace. We have to make uh, decisions every day at ACE. Uh, at the same time, I I think one uh, big factor that changed is the uncertainty I have to deal with at ACE. So it's very important to keep an open mind and be able to change your mind on a regular basis because we work with so little evidence and new evidence is coming in. Um, you have to have a very agile mind. Leia, I'm curious to know from you, are there any milestones or achievements that ACE have in mind which you would be really proud to see accomplished by, again, let's say 2025? Yeah, so as I mentioned, we're in the middle of our three-year strategic planning process and we've done a bit of um, playing uh, playing um, prediction practice within our, our staff and our board over the last few months. and. Um, you know, when you when we asked our team in in February of this year where we thought we might be in five years, we're getting a very different answer than when we had this uh, brainstorm discussion in July and August. 
Um, so certainly our, our goals over the next five years are to um, you know, support the charities in our space in surviving the uh, economic challenges that may come, whatever political challenges may come, um, whether that's in the EU or the United States or in China. Um, so certainly we want to, you know, remain flexible and, you know, be able to meet the needs of the donors, the advocates and the charities of the space for whatever may come in the future. In a more optimistic, um, you know, point of view, maybe looking a little bit more towards the, the three or four year, five year time scale, um, some of the things that we would love to see happen would be, as, as Manya mentioned, a more established academic fields, perhaps also an academic field focusing explicitly on wild animal welfare, which is a new up and coming academic fields. Um, we would like to see the movement um, more developed in, in parts of the world that have especially high animal consumption and currently don't have a um, very large movement. So whether that's China or um, South America or continental Africa or the Middle East, for example, those are our, all parts of the world where, um, you know, there's increasing meat consumption and, and still a lot of room for, for more advocacy. You know, longer term dreams, we would love to see like the budget of the farm animal advocacy movement reach uh, $1 billion someday. And, you know, we want to play whatever role we can in, in helping inspire more donors to, to support this space. Um, and certainly we want to see, you know, advocates being able to, to make a career out of work in this area. So, you know, investing in the professional development of our um, advocates, um, helping them, you know, earn livable wages, work reasonable working conditions, um, and bring in people you know, like Manya who have really specialized skill sets, who have a lot to contribute, um, but we haven't previously been able to attract to the field. So I think, um, yeah, those are some of our, our hopes and dreams. Okay, so imagine it's 2050. You've just succeeded beyond your like wildest dreams. Suppose there's one factor or there's like there's some big reason for this. What do you think that reason is, is most likely to have been? Well, before I answer your question, I just wanted to ask if you've seen this uh, BBC mockumentary called Carnage, which is about the vegan revolution of uh, 2067. Is that Simon Amstel? Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but yeah, uh, I should. highly recommend. Um, anyway, <laughs> I won't get too distracted. I I don't think it's going to be one thing. I don't know. I think it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be our ability to like work with with people from all different parts of the world, work with people from all different types of industries, our ability to, to learn from other social justice movements, to learn from um, economic disciplines, to yeah, be able to you know, have established academic fields that can inform us, have you know, uh, think tanks around policy that can inform us. I think it's, you know, animal suffering is a really, really complex issue. It, it affects um, everyone's fundamental beliefs and actions uh, across the whole world and has for for all of human history. So I think I just don't think we're going to be um, finding a simple solution. And I think, uh, yeah, one thing we can do is like not look for them, <laughs> not look for for cheap and simple solutions, but invest in yeah things that are you know holistic, long term, sustainable impact. When it comes to I guess like people changing their mind or like I, I think the phrase is like expanding your your moral circle. Is it going to be more of that, like, I guess people being consciously aware of like the suffering that animals have and, and taking that more seriously, or is it going to be a changing technology such that, you know, these 
uh, Impossible Burgers become so tasty or so cheap that um, it then becomes a lot easier or even more convenient to close that cognitive dissonance? I think both ways. And as Leah says, uh, there, there are several ways we should go and we should keep in mind that people are different and react to different things. So I think some people we can convince to change their beliefs, to care more about animals and then change their behavior. So there are some people we can, with moral appeals, uh, convince to become vegans, while other people react more to their environment. So there would be offering alternatives, making it easier to eat plant-based alternatives. And then the prediction of cognitive dissonance is actually that those people that change their behavior will also change their belief, because changing the behavior makes it much easier to hold a belief that is friendly towards animals. So I think both ways will lead to the goal. Um, so we asked two closing questions to all of our guests and feel free to answer these as, as, as quickly or as briefly as you like. Um, so the first one is what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about and why? I'm not quite answering your question, but I think in the last couple of months at ACE, I learned so many new things. Like it was a very steep learning curve for me. So I think when it comes to little things, I changed my mind almost on a daily basis, which I found very enjoyable. So what I would like to emphasize is it is good to change your mind. I would love people to be open and transparent about it. And I think that's something I, I will keep in mind from this time. And the very last question we ask all our guests is what three books or articles, films, whatever, would you recommend for anyone who's listened to this and is interested in finding out more about everything we've talked about? I would certainly recommend that people check out our website and our blog. Um, we have a lot more in-depth information about our research, um, you know, much more rigorously explained than me thinking of things off the top of my head. Uh, if you like podcasts, which I assume you do if you're listening to this one, um, we um, are actually working together with Vox's Future Perfect podcast to launch a season uh, on uh, far factory farming, which um, I think just started last week. Uh, so there's a couple of episodes out on that. And um, if you are interested in like reading some more, you know, nerdy but uh, very interesting research, I would also recommend the Open Philanthropy farm animal welfare newsletter, which is written by Amanda Hungerford, Persis Iskander, and Lewis Ballard. And every month they kind of write a deep dive into different relevant topics on animal welfare. So I always learn a lot from those. Awesome. Those are great recommendations. Uh, Leia and Manya, thank you both so much. Thank you very much, Luca and Finn. It was uh, great talking to you. And uh, yeah, thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you for having us. That were Leia Edgerton and Manya Gärtner on Animal Charity Evaluation. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash ace. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced in our conversation, as well as a blog post explaining the key ideas we discussed. I also recommend you check out some of our other related episodes, like episode 12 with Sanjay Joshi, who is the founder of the charity evaluator SoGive, and episode 19 with Peter Singer. If you have any feedback, please do let us know. We're currently looking to try out some new things and add in a bunch of new features, so knowing what you think works and what doesn't is super useful to help us improve the podcast. 
This could be anything from leaving an honest review on whatever platform you're listening to this from or emailing us at feedback at hearthisidea.com. We do also have a feedback form on our website that you can fill out anonymously. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, if you find these episodes valuable and want to help us to pay for hosting these online, you can leave a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.